Good evening, everyone, and welcome to The Real Science Exchange, the podcast where leading scientists and industry professionals meet over a few drinks to discuss the latest ideas and trends in animal nutrition. Tonight, we get to look into our crystal ball and prophesize a little bit about how 2022 will shape up for agriculture around the globe. Hi, I'm Scott Sorrell, one of your hosts at The Real Science Exchange. With the continuing uh, global pandemic, production and supply issues, and the ever-present concerns of weather and animal diseases, there are many potential disruptors for global agriculture. To help us answer those questions, we welcome back Brett Stewart with Global Agritrends. Brett, you've become a regular here at The Real Science Lecture Series and now at The Real Science Exchange. Welcome back. Thank you, Scott. Great to be here. Super. Glad to have you back. Um, Brad, I see that you brought your partner, Richard Fritz, with you back to the pub once again. Welcome back, Richard. Uh, we thank you, uh, both of you guys, for joining. Uh, Richard, in the spirit of uh, the, our pub theme, how did you toast the new year uh, about a month ago? Well, um, I was watching the, the drop, uh, ball drop um, in New York, and I just had to have a martini in my hand. And then uh, eventually followed by a gin and tonic to throw out the first lime of the season. Yeah, nice. <laughs> nice. And are you enjoying uh, any cocktails this evening? Um, yes, I am. Um, I'm, I'm a beer guy, so I'm having a beer. All right. Very good. And in our co-host position, I'm pleased to welcome two new faces, Kyle Montgomery, the Vice President of Supply Chain for Balkim, and John Bedell, Vice President of Supply Chain Strategy also with Balkim. I want to thank John and uh, Kyle for joining us here at the Real Science Exchange and I'd like to start off by asking, what's in your glass, gentlemen? I'm like Richard. I, I'm a beer guy. You're a beer um, guy. Now, being from Ireland, I really should be drinking a Guinness, but uh, they don't have it, have it on draft, so I'm having a lager beer instead, but it still tastes good. Yeah, very nice. And, and I, I'm with, uh, with both of them as well. I'm a beer guy as well. Beer tonight for everybody. Wow, guys, I'm going to buck the trend. I'm having a, I'm having my traditional bourbon. I've got a Woodford's tonight, but in about a month, I got to show you guys something. My, my son bought me this. I don't know if you can see it. A little cask for Christmas, and it's a real wooden uh, oak cask. And what you do is you put uh, moonshine in it. And because it's smaller, a lot of surface area for the amount of uh, moonshine that's in there, in about a month or two, that uh, moonshine gets turned into bourbon. Um, I tasted it about a month in. It's not ready yet. It says I uh, need another month on it. So maybe in another month or so, I'll let you guys know how my own creations uh, started. So that's my story for this evening. Is that um, legal? <laughs> I have no idea. I probably can't. I probably can't call it bourbon, but uh, maybe maybe whiskey. So, anyway, the first sip was quite good, even though it's it's still uh, relatively new. Tonight's pubcast stories are brought to you by Reassure Precision Release Choline. Reassure is the most researched encapsulated choline on the market today, consistently delivering results to your transition cows of higher peak milk reduced metabolic disorders, and even in utero benefits to her calf leading to growth and health improvements. Visit Balchem.com to learn more. Uh, Brett, to get us started, uh, during your webinar presentation in December of 2021, you talked about the world's largest macroeconomic experiment with the U.S. Congress throwing money at the pandemic. You also mentioned that the banks were begging people to take that money and that interest rates were exceptionally low. Um, what is the situation now that a month has passed into 2022? 
Great question, Scott. So you're right. Uh, you're right in quoting me that I was right. How about that? And saying <laughs> that I believe this really was the biggest macroeconomic experiment in the world. Uh, the U.S. grew our M2 money supply by 40% in two years, $6 trillion into the U.S. money supply, hugely inflationary. And to your other question, what's happened or what's changed? Well, one thing that changed, and I guess it was really in November when it changed, after 10 months of just dismissing inflation as temporary, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, right after he was nominated to a second term, came out and said, okay, it's not transitory, it's for real, and we need to react. And so the world's been watching very closely the Fed Chairman's comments. And as we go into 2022 and even beyond, uh, these markets are going to be dictated by the world's central banks. That is going to be the influence here, driving markets and driving commodities. Now, the Fed chairman said he's looking at March of ending purchases, bond purchases, and uh, they're expecting possibly three rate hikes this year. I think those rate hikes, if I had to guess, based on his tone, will be very, very small rate hikes. And I think what we're seeing is we're trying to shoot this inflationary elephant with a BB gun is what it feels like to me. I just think it's, his tone suggests it's going to be far too little to really have an impact or a significant impact on breaking inflation. So talk a little bit about inflation. What do you see going forward if you said you don't see it, uh, the, the modest increase is breaking it. So what, what can we expect over the next year to five years? Every, everyone has an opinion. I'll give you mine. <laughs> everyone has a thought. First of all, the, the inflation deniers are going to be proven correct to some degree in that a year ago, as, as gasoline prices were up 45%, diesel prices up 50%, and they said, this is temporary. It's going to go away. Oh, in 12 months, when gas prices are still 380 and diesel prices are still 410, in 12 months, that's 0% inflation, right? because we only compare back 12 months. And so we had this big zoom up in prices. If we stabilize for 12 months, inflation resets to zero. Yeah. And so there's gonna be a lot of that discussion probably into spring because that's when we're gonna lap the calendar and we're gonna hear a lot of people say, well, inflation's coming back down. The reality is these prices are still gonna be extremely high. And uh, with the expansion of the US money supply, not just the US, but around the world, I don't see an opportunity to really break these prices back lower. I think this was a fundamental shift, especially in commodity markets, similar to what ethanol was. Um, you know, I remember 20 years ago, I was managing cattle on feed in Oklahoma and we could buy corn for $2 a bushel, week in, week out, 98, 99. And then we went through the ethanol phase and corn became $4 a bushel. And that was the baseline and corn below $4 was no longer profitable. I think now we're up above $6 and this five, $6 range may be the new trading range for corn. And I think with inflation, we set those baselines and we move forward from here. I just don't see, you know, I think markets can be overinflated. The stock market to me has been a, a bubble for years, but what do I know? But I look at these commodities and I say, I don't see a significant break in 2022 or even 2023. I'm going to guess, though, um, the impact on inputs is going to be equally as high. Is that correct? So maybe profitability is not going to be much better. Would right. that be a fair assumption? Yeah. So the race now is to try and keep your 
try and keep your uh, net income neutral, right? And so we see these prices go up and initially everyone thinks, wow, we're making money, you know, $6 corn, this is fantastic. When you were selling last year's corn at $6, you were making money. When you're selling this year's corn at $6, you're not gonna be making near as much money. Uh, look at where, where uh, fertilizer is. The fertilizer indexes have dropped, prices have dropped, but they're still 100% above a year ago. And so it's everything, it's, it's steel, it's diesel, it's every input you have is significantly higher. And so it's, it goes from this phase of inflation elation to what I think is now inflation frustration and for consumers and for producers. Hmm. Yeah, but kick over to John and Kyle, my colleagues there. Uh, guys, what are we seeing in, uh, in our businesses? Well, uh, I mean, it's, 2020 uh, following on, I would say following on from uh, from from Brett's presentation in in, in December um, yeah thinking that COVID was all over at the end of 2020 and 2021 would be uh, uh, would be all sunshine um, it's definitely not the case uh, actually very very much more challenging from a from a supply chain perspective and as you know as I've talked with uh, customers of Balcam suppliers of Balcam. Everybody's uh, everybody's feeling in the same uh, in the same boat, so to speak. Uh, you know, commodity prices uh, very elevated. You know, when you see where crude oil is in the mid eighties, it's had to high eighties. Brent crossing the ninety mark. You see natural gas, which had been you know down in the twos and threes uh, for for you know several for a couple of years. Uh, now breaking, uh, you know, five and six, easing back down to four. They're, the those prices, and then you see veg oil is following as well. They, they're just major, major changes and major, major shifts. So all the derivatives of those, they come through the supply chain and they cost more. Uh, and then the other key thing that, that I would call out and that, you know, is critical in my position and, and the, the teams that I look after is uh, is the dynamic on global and regional logistics? Uh, you know, just being able to move stuff and uh, uh, around the globe with, within within regions, uh, whether it's deep sea, whether it's uh, whether it's in country, um, is is a major major challenge, and it's a major major challenge because of that post COVID growth that we're seeing. Um, there's a lot of demand for. Uh, which is a good thing, okay? There's a lot of demand, there's a lot of growth potential out there, but we've got a logistics network, um, infrastructure, and say labor markets supporting it that um, at, uh, at this juncture is really struggling to keep up with that. And I really see that as being a, an ongoing major challenge throughout 2022. Uh, that noise that we've been seeing for the last six or nine months, it isn't going away anytime soon. Uh, you know, and I think it'll be well into 2023 before we uh, before we see uh, potential relief in that. Um, the challenge is, of course, if demand uh, keeps growing, people have money, and uh, they still want to purchase stuff. That stuff still needs to move, and uh, it's it's how that is enabled on a global basis uh, will will really determine if that demand is is actually met by by the consumer. Mm -hmm. 
So maybe I'll ask this to the panel, but uh, I mean, Kyle brings up a very good point. Um, our business has been uh, extremely hampered by lack of, of being able to get trucks and, and, and imports from uh, China or from Europe. Um, what's got to change before that um, improves? What, what are the key dynamics behind that and what's going to move it? What's going to change it? Richard, I haven't heard from you yet. Why don't we pass that one to you? Okay, well... Um, I'm always a pessimist, as um, um, you know, kind of offsetting bread a little bit in, in global agri-trends. And I, I just see consumer demand declining. You know, we saw a little bit of that happen uh, already. You know, there's projections of a half a percent uh, decline in consumer demand in January. Um, there's less stimulus coming into the um, U.S. economy, there's less stimulus going into the international economy. Uh, and food prices have gone up substantially uh, across the board. So I think that people are going to have actually less disposable income uh, in, in this calendar year. So I see demand kind of turning down, which means there'll be less pressure on the distribution system. Uh, across the board. Um, and uh, so is it going to be enough to stem the inflation? No. Uh, but at the same time, I think people are going to be a little more hesitant to spend their money than they were last year. I, I have to agree with you. You know, um, through this year, about through 2021, we talked about five headwinds. You know, we talked about uh, um, increased demand, which a lot of uh, of our suppliers, a lot of our customers, we certainly were facing. Um, constrained supply, it felt like nobody could get enough employees. You were constantly behind on orders. Uh, we faced uh, the commodity uh, price pressure that uh, that you've talked about, and I think a lot of that has to do with the uh, money supply and hedges against inflation and and. Fundamentals certainly played a part of it, but I think that there was uh, non-fundamentals driving it as well. And then uh, the last two headwinds are logistics, both you know domestic logistics, which I think is a, in large part a labor issue, and international logistics, which has just simply been a mess all year. Out of those five things, I think the only thing that really fundamentally is going to happen to change things is is demand. I think, you know, if you see a softening of demand, you could see a change in the dynamic. I think the question is, when does that happen and what exactly is the dynamics that drive that? Mm -hmm. And maybe something, John, to add to your point, and it, and it comes back to Brett's point as well. All the stimulus that happened in uh, the first 18 months of COVID, all that money that was uh, was put into the economy. The I don't have a number for it, but the interesting part for me would be hey, how much of that is still sitting around waiting to be spent, mm -hmm. okay? Because I think that's a key part. Because if I know that we've seen demand of the come out of COVID and people saying, hey, we've got money, we've got spending, but how much of that that has gone, in, uh, gone, gone out uh, has actually been spent? Because if there's a lot of that still sitting around, then there is still a strong driver of spending, of growth, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure, maybe maybe Brad has a number on that or, or someone may have read something, but that to me is uh, is very important going forward, to, particularly related to that demand side question. I, I think, yeah, I agree. I think what you're saying here is the party doesn't stop until the money runs out, right? Exactly. And so U.S. bank accounts, the last number I saw, I think it was a month ago, 
the year over year change in US personal bank accounts was $4 trillion. There's still $4 trillion, an increase over the prior year. Now, if you break it out, most of that is held by the top 10%. And uh, the bottom 50% is a very small increase. And so I think where we're headed is into somewhat of a two-tier recovery or a two-tier correction where uh, food inflation, we know, taxes the poor the hardest. Um, when you're just covering your basic needs and those needs all go up, I think what we're gonna see, that'll be the first uh, demographic group to really feel pullback in the economy will be the lower income consumers. Uh, the higher income consumers have done fantastic with, with their stock returns, with everything else. And so I think it's gonna be somewhat two-tiered. Hmm. Question for you guys, you know, the, the problems that we're seeing, uh, labor, inflation, logistics, how much of it was caused by COVID and how much of it was caused by government's response to COVID? Yeah, I, my, my flippant response is, is the impact of the reaction to COVID was much worse than COVID. Now, you can look at the death statistics of COVID and it's no small thing, but... Uh, but I, I mentioned the U.S. put $6 trillion into the economy globally within four months of the pandemic, $10 trillion was approved. So it wasn't just the U.S., it was Japan and Europe and everyone, but $10 trillion put into there, I think had a much bigger impact by just juicing demand. And we can look at the logistic issues and yeah, there were sick employees at the ports at Long Beach and L.A. and we got behind as people called them sick. But if you look at the total throughput of containers, it is shockingly higher. It's not lower. Our throughput isn't lower into those ports. It's higher. And uh, I think the bigger impact was just that we put so much pressure on those supply chains through demand uh, than we actually did through sick employees. But both of them were a factor. Mm -hmm. That's my take. I don't know. I don't know, Brett. What do you think, though, about the fact that COVID is still hanging around. Um, schools are in a mess, whether they're opening or closing. So it seems like in some cases there still are labor shortages, you know, huge retirements in, in the educational sector, in the nursing sector. Um, so, and as prices go up, just today, there were reports about the fast food industry and restaurants trimming their menus, mm -hmm. giving out smaller portions of foods. Mm. Um, so I think consumers are still going to be hesitant in spending that extra, you know, couple trillion dollars uh, because they don't know whether or not another COVID COVID variant is going to be coming along the pike, how long there may or may not be out of a job, and there's no stimulus checks coming forward anymore. So um, I, I just have some concerns that people are going to hunker down again um, and not go out, and especially to the high-end restaurants, um, and they're going to even be looking for cheaper alternatives to going out and eating, whether it's a drive-through or, you know, a casual restaurant. 
Yeah, we're we're already seeing that in the data. Yeah, that's 2022. 2021 was throw gas on the fire and blow up the logistic chain. 2022 is the hangover, in my opinion. I think that's what we're starting to see now. Like I said, the the wealthy half of the country have piles of money on the sidelines. Uh, the poorer half doesn't. But I think you're exactly right. I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, the University of Michigan puts out the Consumer Sentiment Index. And in November, that index said 50%, over 50% of the households surveyed said, we think we're going to take home less money in 2022 on a real inflation-adjusted mm -hmm. basis, that we're actually going to be making less after we pay our bills. 50, over 50% 50 of U.S. consumers said that. We think 2022 is going to be tighter on our budgets. And uh, yeah, I think that's exactly where we're headed. Hmm. So going forward, and we said uh, starting off, we're going to look into our crystal ball. What do we see looking into our crystal ball? What kind of impact is, is COVID going to continue to have beyond uh, 2022? Good question. I, I don't know. You know, we look at the vax rates, we're what, 68% vaccinated. You look at the Omicron wave. If you were or were not vaccinated, you probably got COVID or someone you know got COVID. I just have to believe the level of immunity is getting much, much higher. And sure, there will be more variants in, in, the, in the swine world. The veterinarians would tell you over time, your sows build immunity because sows live more than a year. Your piglets don't. You have a new crop of piglets every year. So that naive population just gets clobbered. But if you can build some level of immunity, the same viruses have a smaller impact over time. And with humans, we gather immunity. Now, I think one thing that'll be interesting is the one country in the world that has kept their population relatively naive to this is China. Mm -hmm. Now, they've used vaccine, but their contact tracing has largely kept Omicron from spreading, even the Delta variant from spreading. And they're, they're doubled down on it. They're really trying to hold hold true to this contact tracing. And so as we go into 2022, we may be in a spot where Europe, North America, a lot of these areas have very high levels because we fought our way through the virus where China still has somewhat of a naive population. I think that's interesting to consider. I don't know yeah. if they can hold it together or not with their contact tracing plan. Mm -hmm. Brett, that's a great segue. <clears throat> you know, one of the biggest levers we have in uh, global agriculture, the economy, is is China. Let's talk a little bit about China and the impact that it has and will have on the global uh, global agriculture. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll take a swing at that. When I look, I'm just looking at my charts here while I talk. The thing that's pretty shocking to me about China, and we've followed this in the pork world for years, China became the largest pork importer in the world in 2020. Uh, we followed in soybeans for years. China became the biggest soybean importer over 20 years or 20-ish years ago. But what's changed in the last three years is China went from about the number six or seven wheat importer in the world to number two. They went from in corn, they were down, uh, where were they on corn? They were down number six, number seven in the world the last two years, the biggest corn importer in the world. So corn sees that impact, wheat sees that impact. Uh, chicken, they weren't even really on the radar three years ago. Now they're the number two chicken buyer in the world. Uh, 
um, pork, number one by a margin, beef, number one by 2x. Um, so all of our major commodity groups in the, in the grains and, and protein side, in the last three to five years, China has jumped out way ahead of everyone and made huge, huge waves in these commodity markets. And so we're now in a spot where the single key driver is a country that is relatively not transparent, uh, doesn't really publish supplier demand data or even reasonable price data. Um, they historically have not played by the rules since 2001 when they joined the WTO. Uh, they pretty much flaunt a lot of the global trade rules. And so it completely changes, I think, the way we analyze and anticipate and manage risk in agriculture now is that the biggest driver in the world is one that's opaque and vague and relatively unstable. Brad, what do you think drove those? I, I saw those charts in your previous uh, presentation and it was a pretty eye-opening. What, what do you think has driven those changes within China to, to move up to those higher levels of those other, let's say, food groups? Yeah, I think the real dilemma that China has had has been their own success in per capita income. We know that population is stable. It's not really moving. But in the last, what was it, from 2020 or 2009, I think 2009 to 2020, the number was they moved close to 300 million people into their middle class. That's basically the size of America. And it's still happening. And, uh, you know, I've been in the Chinese villages. I remember 20 years ago going through the villages in China and seeing kids without shoes and just real abject poverty. And the villages today, the ones I was in in 2019, looked a lot different than what I remember 20 years ago. There has been a significant level of income uh, growth in China. And I think that has just really increased demand for everything. Most, most notably would be beef. You look at the beef market. It is just red hot on fire through COVID, through everything, beef demand in China is phenomenal. And it just keeps growing. The prices go up and the volume goes up. And I think that's just one indicator. But I think that's what's really made them much more dependent on the global markets for commodities is just simply their own success. And, and the fact that their ag productivity has really not been going up. Right. And to your earlier point, um, you talked about lack of data. Well, even if they publish the data, nobody believes it, right? I yeah. mean, it doesn't matter if it's production or prices or anything else. Um, and I would also throw in the fact that uh, this year especially, there's going to be another election hmm. in China. Um, President Xi is up to become president for life, basically, come October, November. So he's going to make sure that prices are not inflationary when it comes to food and there's going to be adequate food supplies, which is also driving up some of the, in, uh, excuse me, imports into China as well. So one of the commodities that, uh, that China has been buying a lot of recently is pork, and I think some of that's driven by African swine fever there. Um, can, we, can we talk just a bit about the outlook for African swine fever there? And then what if it makes it to our shores? Yeah, so I think if you look at African swine fever in China, it, it was discovered in 2018. 
It was hidden and buried until late 2019 when they finally were forced to admit that possibly half of their herd was gone. Now, China has half of the pigs on Earth. And so when they lose half of their herd, it's a big deal. And uh, so they end up with about an 18 million ton shortage. Hyperinflation ensues. Hog prices inflate 250, 300%. And they do that for 10 months straight. So hog farming profits go bananas, right? $300 a head profit for 10 months in China. Yet they kept their foot on the brake in terms of imports. Now they imported 5 million tons of pork the last two years, up from one, 1.5. But if they would have let that market flow, they would have imported way more pork. And so I joke about the invisible hand, they kept an invisible hand on the scale there and maintained imports at a level that didn't overheat the global pork markets. And for the US 2020, we fully expected to see some significant price moves that never occurred because China just bought just enough US pork that it didn't inflate our price. So I think that provides a real example of how China works in these markets. So where they are today on their swine herd, um, their prices dropped 65% during 2021 from January to December pretty much a straight line collapse in hog prices. The Chinese government would say it's because they have successfully recovered from African swine fever. I would say it's because they've been liquidating for most of 12 months. Uh, they had some significant outbreaks early in 2021 that led to some significant culling. By June, they were unprofitable. Prices had fallen so low, they were losing money. So they've now went seven months in China, the Chinese swine sector, losing money. They've been not profitable for seven months. And in China, the difference is if you're a hog farmer and you're losing money in the US, you can go to your bank and say, look, I'm going to leverage some of my farmland and keep feeding hogs. You got to remember, no one owns farmland in China. So if you're a big hog farmer, you own a building and you own pigs and you own feed and that's it. And if that's not making money, you can chase investors. There's not a lot of options. And so seven months of unprofitability tells me they've probably been liquidating sows to keep those pigs fed that they're feeding. And uh, every farmer in the world knows the saying, high prices fix high prices. They also know the inverse. And the Chinese hog farmers know the inverse. Low, low prices are going to lead to high prices. So those that can are trying to hang on, but it's a slow bleed. And like I say, seven months of losing money in China tells me they've liquidated a significant portion of their herd. And I think there's a good chance in the next four to six months, we see that Chinese hog price take off again. And uh, the real question is, do they import or not? They've shown they're perfectly willing to let their consumers absorb that inflation without saving them with imports. And so who knows if they import or not, they'll probably step up imports to some degree, maybe not to the true level that that would flow in an open economy. Let's talk a little bit about our trade agreement. Uh, phase one ended in December. Um, has that been a success or a failure? Good question. You could, I think you could argue that either way. What do you think, Fritz? Well, um, I think the most successful part of that agreement is kind of understated, and that is, there are a lot of provisions in the agreement that set standards for animal health, for trade, 
for use of products, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, animal drugs or whatever. And those will continue on. And uh, I think that has been extremely helpful to the exporting countries into, into China. Um, the price aspect of the agreement, um, I, I, I struggle with this agreement, to be quite honest with you. I mean, first of all, it's a trade agreement set on prices, not on volume. So it's totally different than any other agreement that we've seen. It was also short term. It did not have any enforcement mechanism whatsoever. And I don't think any of us really thought China was going to reach the volume of import or the value of imports that was set out in the agreement. So uh, I think it was successful in opening the market, especially especially for beef and, and poultry. But I also think that it was less successful in assuring that this managed trade was going to continue and give some certainty to the industry. So I'm looking at the chart here. Uh, 2019, 2018, China imported about 8 billion of U.S. agriculture. Right. 2019, they imported about 14 billion of U.S. agriculture, and that was the year that that agreement was signed. 2021, we'll get the trade data here soon, the year-end trade data. My estimate is it'll be 33 billion. The previous record was 26, and the commitment, I think, was 37 or 39 billion, right around there. Right. And so you could look and say, well, we didn't get the 39 billion, so it's a failure, but you could look and say, it is three times what it was three years ago. Now, but the prices were also, are also higher, right? Well, the, the, yeah, and the flip side of that is, you say, did the Chinese buy 33 billion of US agriculture last year? because they were scared of Trump and he had negotiated this agreement and they had a gun to their head that they had to buy it? Or did they simply buy it because they needed it? Mm -hmm. And I would argue they bought it because they needed it. Now, the, the phase one threw the door wide open for things like beef. Beef had very limited access to China and some of those access agreements were incredible. Mm -hmm. um, truly, uh, our, our competitors are green with envy at the deal we got with China. Uh, so it did throw the doors open, but but I would argue they bought that stuff because they needed it, not because they had a gun to their head. Interesting comments. I'd like to kind of change uh, uh, directions here for a moment. Um, as we look into our crystal ball, what role is um, animal disease going to play in the industry, right? We've got African swine fever in China, in Europe. We've got it in the Caribbean now. Uh avian influenza um, and you know there's talk that um, there's going to be more of these diseases coming out of places like china um, what role is that going to play in global agriculture going forward any thoughts mm -hmm. <laughs> we we know that let's start with hpai so we know that hpai has been raging pretty much worldwide the last five months um, it's all over europe it's throughout Asia, Japan, Korea, China. And by nature, waterfowl migrate to the poles uh, during their summer season, and then they migrate back towards the equator and beyond. 
during the winter. And so those, those waterfowl that come from Asia and the waterfowl that come from Europe end up at the poles together congregating. And so you can mix viruses very well and then they all go back to their own continents. Um, we now know that HPAI is in the US. We've had cases in Virginia, which started out in Canada up near Labrador. Uh, it ended up in Virginia, now it's in North Carolina. And I would expect we're gonna find out there's waterfowl soon in South Carolina, maybe Georgia, as that flock moves south. Fortunately, we have not found it in a commercial poultry barn, which would be uh, would require notification to the World Animal Health Organization, and there would be trade restrictions and a radius put around those farms. Um, but we know it's it's all over. HPAI is all over. I, all we can do in the U.S. is keep keep to those biosecurity protocols and cross our fingers and hope we don't have an issue with it. And Brent, you um, kind of referenced it, but just for background, the OIE, um, the World Organization for Animal Health, did change the reporting requirements and the definitions last year. Low-path avian influ influenza is no longer reportable. Um, the only time a country has to report it is if they have a bilateral agreement with a trading partner. Um, so actually avian influenza is uh, wider spread than what we hear about today. It's just a high path avian influenza, um, especially in commercial operations that you're hearing more about. So um, it's a disease that's never gonna go away. We're just gonna have to get used to trading, you know, poultry, poultry products in this environment. The way it works too, it's interesting to me to see how countries respond because most countries follow the OIE regulations very closely for HPAI. They'll put a 10 kilometer radius or 10 kilometer uh, circle around the barn and uh, they don't trade from there. Some countries will say we're banning poultry exports from that county. Some will say some state. China's the only one that said we're banning the whole country coast to coast over an HPAI outbreak. So that's the concern now. If we get an HPAI outbreak commercially, does China do that again and ban all U.S. poultry? That would be a problem. Outside of that, countries are pretty good at just hitting those little farms and we can still maintain flows without a major disruption. So that's where HPAI is a little different. Now, African swine fever, even if we find it in a wild boar in Texas, we wake up the next day and we have 20% too much pork in the U.S. market. And it is a free fall. Um, very different disease, very different situation, very concerning. And you mentioned, Scott, it's now in the Caribbean basin. That was a big shock last year in August when they found it in the Dominican Republic and in Haiti. Uh, those are the first cases in the Western Hemisphere in modern history. And uh, this is a disease that just keeps moving. Wherever you find it, it just spreads, whether it's in Russia or Europe or China, uh, Southeast Asia no one has been able to really stop the spread of ASF. And so to have it in the Western Hemisphere is unsettling. Yeah. Although it's much harder to spread than even influenza. Um, yeah. Until pigs start flying, we're, 
we're going down that same road. <laughs> yeah. We had a gentleman on the uh, Real Science Lecture Series from the USDA, and they're working on a vaccine. I think they think they're rather close, so we'll keep our fingers crossed that they are and that we'll have at least uh, one tool in our toolbox to, to combat that. Well, uh, if I could just say something about that, um, even if they develop a vaccine, I think Brett and I agree that there's probably going to be little use for it, especially in the United States and other exporting countries. Um, it's once you start vaccinating and your all your animals start testing positive, hmm. how do you export those products uh, with a positive finding? Uh, so I, I'm not sure the vaccine hmm. is really the the uh, solution to this problem by any means. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought of that. It's it's not a silver bullet for the U.S. Yeah, right. Because it's it's a complex virus, and it's actually it's not even considered highly contagious. ASF isn't. It's hmm. not airborne. Hmm. It's nose to nose. It's blood or you know Tissue. manure. Yeah. It's got to be fluid based. But the challenge is it's very hardy. It's very hard to kill. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, for us, unless it was endemic here, a vaccine probably wouldn't do much. Now, if we found a case of it here on, a say, a farm in the Midwest, our biosecurity would probably be able to stamp it out fairly quickly. Unlike China, we're not sharing trucks and sharing feed mills and sharing everything. I think we could stamp it out just because it's not it's nothing like the PERS virus or PED. It's not highly contagious. But the vaccine would be great if you could go to Dominican Republic or Haiti and say, let's vaccinate and try to see if we can stop it down there. The real problem becomes wild boars. And so you can vaccinate your domestic hogs. A little more challenging to vaccinate the wild boar herd. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where it gets sticky. So vaccine is a is a tool, I agree, but I think it would be, I don't think it's a silver bullet to prevent it from being an issue here. Yeah, great comments. If you guys don't mind, I'd like to kind of uh, switch uh, the topics just a little bit on something um, that was touched on earlier, and that's uh, the labor issues that we have currently. Um, Brad, I think back in December, you said there's uh, 11 million job openings now. Has, has anything changed since then? Yeah, it's probably gotten worse. Okay. <laughs> you know, we're probably, I don't think it's gotten better. And, and that's the one thing, Scott, when I talk to, to our clients all over, not just the U.S., all over the world, the one thing they're screaming about is labor. Everyone's going, we need labor, we need this fixed. And if I looked out through 2022, I'd say, you know what, there is a solution, but I don't think we're willing to do it. We have, at least in the U.S., we've got these hog plants, beef plants. We've got wages up above $20 an hour, entry-level wages to work in a plant. You think about the people in Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, El Salvador. We could bring a lot of people that would do anything for $20 an hour. But I don't think our administration is open to that or our Congress. I just don't think politically we're going to do that. And uh, I don't know. It, here's my conspiracy theory is that the political answer is we got to keep wages going up to try and keep up with inflation. And so if we keep this labor market really tight, maybe there's a chance we can keep employees going. Now, the, the problem with that theory is, is high labor creates inflation. And so it's kind of a self-fulfilling problem. 
Um, but I think the only real solution we have in the in the next two, three years is immigration. And that's just one that it doesn't sound like it's politically palatable right now. Mm-hmm. So my my hard answer to this is get used to it. Yeah. I just don't see a solution. Or automation. Yeah. I, yeah, I was gonna ask about productivity technology. Yeah. Eventually. But in twenty twenty two we're not gonna solve it with technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems to be an issue, you know, particularly in North America, but it also seems to be global. We, we talk with uh, suppliers in, in India and in, in various parts of the world, and they seem to be facing labor issues as much as we're facing labor issues. So I, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Is that is that a condition because of the uh, the pandemic or is there something else going on there? We did kind of a we did kind of a rough sampling of beef packing plants around the world two weeks ago. And we said, what's your processing throughput today versus a year ago uh, because of the Omicron variant? We've had plants slow down. We had processors in South America say we're 30% below a year ago in our slaughter rates because of COVID, because of sick workers. Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, we heard a lot of that. Uh, We had some slowdown in New Zealand, some slowdown in Australia. And as bad as we've had it here, I thought maybe we aren't as bad as some of these other countries are. You know, I think we were down probably 15% in the last couple of weeks in some of our plants. Um, but it's, I think it's been a major issue globally with sick workers. Yeah, I agree with you. It, um, it, anecdotally, it seems to be a problem everywhere. Is this mostly a blue collar? Uh, issue or are we seeing the same thing in the white collar ranks? Hmm. Well, the the term that comes to my mind is the great resignation, right? We just, we saw a lot of baby boomers last year that said, look how much our stock is worth. Look how much our house is worth. We're just going to retire. And uh, that may have more of an impact on, on the white collar world than than blue collar. I don't know. That's just a thought. Mm-hmm. You know, Fritz mentioned before um, technology and that being maybe something that's going to help us. But, you know, the flip side of that is, uh, you know, as we get more AI and machine learning, autonomous vehicles, now all of a sudden there are no more jobs for people. Are we, I forget what the, the name of that cartoon was with the little robot guy and all the humans were floating around on uh, little scooters. I don't know what it was. Are we going to end up in a dystopian, uh, you know, society where, where there are no jobs for people, specifically in agriculture? It's interesting, right? I think that's a, I think it's fascinating to go down the road of how fast technology is changing. The one thing we know about technology, it gets better and it gets cheaper. Yeah. And so we look at that, the autonomous driving, that's kind of been a joke, like, yeah, right, everyone's going to get killed in a car. It will get better and it will get cheaper. And whether even you think about lab-based protein, not viable today, not even close, but it will get cheaper and it will get better. I think you have to pay attention to some of those things. And technology is definitely a, a wave that's we know how it goes. Yeah, that was something I wanted to uh, to touch on. In your uh, presentation, you talked about a linear line between meat consumption and global GDP. 
And then I, I just wondered if you had factored in, you know, things like plant protein. There's a move toward that in some populations. Lab-grown meat, uh, mm -hmm. insect and microbial proteins. Have you, have you factored in any of that in your, your calculations in, on the demand for, you know, traditional uh, animal meat sources? Yeah, so I'd forecasted out 10 years based from 2020 to 2030 based on the IMF GDP forecasts, which have a 9.9 correlation, 0.99 correlation with global meat demand. More GDP, more meat demand. And what it told us was in the next 10 years, we're going to need 75 million tons more beef, pork, and poultry. The prior 10 years, we increased by about 56 million tons. We're going to need 70, 79, 78. And so what it's saying is we're going to need to increase faster. So, yeah, um, thoughts on alt meats. And I don't know, I'm probably a little different than a lot of people on alt meats. I think the, I think the lab-based thing is for real in theory. I think we're at least 10 years away. I think the opportunity for lab-based meat, I'm not going to be, I don't think I'm going to be 3D printing a steak here 10 years from now in my office. But if you can make lab-based just pure red lean meat, muscle tissue, that's one thing. If you can make it for $2 a pound, that's a totally different thing. And I could see a great opportunity for that to be blended with 50-50 trim or just be used as an additive to stretch existing meat. I think that's probably the gateway for lab-based meat, but I still think we're 10 years plus out. Um, the, the vegetable protein, honestly, I think it was somewhat of a, of a passing fad. I think it'll be there forever. I'm not saying it won't be there. It was real easy to sell a vastly improved product to the three to 5% of Americans that identify as vegan or vegetarian. I mean, you think about the old vegetable patties that have been around for 30 years. I don't even know why they made them or who ate them. Mm -hmm. So it was really easy to, to sell that to that first group. Go get the next 5% of Americans. I think that's going to be a tougher sell. And I think we're already seeing that resistance in the, in the plant-based meats. You can look at the stock of Beyond, Food, Beyond Meat. Um, their stock has taken a beating. And I think, I think their big growth is behind them. I think they'll be there. I think they'll be there for the long haul. I don't think they're going to be 10% of the market in 10 years and probably not in 20 years, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Good insight. The, the, it's interesting to look at that correlation and it's held for a long time. The question is, will it hold in the future? You're talking about the correlation between GDP and meat and poultry. Yes. 50, yes, what yeah. it is, it's a 50-year correlation mm -hmm. that far. But will it hold given the pressures that producers are going to see in production, especially climate-related and financial input-related uh, pressures? And do you think that might change the shift in protein that is less environmental impact, let's say a poultry versus, uh, you know, beef uh, production. Will the world move a lot more towards poultry and eggs, maybe some aquaculture items, rather than keeping that correlation with beef and pork? It's a good question. Really, Fritz, I think that has been happening for 30 years. If we look at global per capita, 
per capita beef consumption, it's relatively flat to down for the mm -hmm. last 20, 30, 40 years. Chicken has been like this. And that's probably the economic response to billions coming into the global middle class that say we can't afford beef, but we can't afford chicken. And so I think that continues. Um, in total, total beef, pork, poultry to total GDP, if it does break, it's going to be because we just simply can't produce enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fascinating to think about because what does that tell you about producer prices? What that model tells me is I don't care what business you're in today in agriculture, you better have a growth strategy the next 10 years. And you may not need it this year, but somewhere in the next 10 years, we're going to need more and the markets are going to be there for it. Um, I just think it's a, a very optimistic outlook. So either we don't produce it and we break that correlation. But again, this is a 50-year correlation with a 0.99 R-squared. Or the other scenario is those GDP forecasts don't hold and we go into global recession and we slow down demand that way. Uh, I think those are the only two viable options. Mm -hmm. Brett, I saw you take a drink uh, from your cup, which reminded me that there was a topic I haven't touched on yet, uh, and that's weather patterns. So why don't you tell us what's in your cup and why that reminded me yeah. of weather patterns? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm the boring teetotaler of the group here. So I was trying to think of what I could what I could mix up today, and I got really quite exotic, Scott. I, I woke up, it was minus three this morning here in southeast Idaho. I don't think we've been above freezing for four weeks. I've got ice on my step that I think it's been there since Christmas. We've, it's just been cold. So I got up and I made myself a, a hot cocoa. That's what I'm, uh, that's what I'm toasting with today. Yeah. Great so, idea. So weather, right? Weather, weather's the great unknown. It's always the topic of discussion in agriculture because we simply don't know. I, uh, weather's the great determining factor. I would say, um, we work with, a with a pretty well-esteemed meteorologist, Dr. Art Douglas. He's a retired meteorologist from Creighton University. He has been forecasting long-term agriculture weather patterns for over 40 years. He is in retirement. We keep begging him to just keep taking our calls anyway. He sent me an update two weeks ago and he said, Brett, the La Nina pattern in the Pacific, that's the cooling water on the equator that lends to drought in the Western US. That's what we've had now for well over a year. That La Nina pattern that caused wildfires and drought in the, in the Western US. He said the models are now forecasting that will continue through spring. I think that's significant. Now it could change, the models are forecasting that and I don't know what it does into summer. But uh, you can see what's going on with our U.S. cow herd because of drought, expensive hay, lack of forage. We're contracting the U.S. beef herd now. Uh, we've seen the wildfires in California, the environmental impact of that. Um, it looks to me, this doesn't sound good, but it looks to me like at least into spring, we're going to remain in a drier weather pattern, particularly in the, in the West and in the, the Western Plains. Yeah, thank you for that. Got a few more subjects. Just uh, we're getting getting toward the end here. Wanted to touch on a few things. One that's starting to heat up is, um, you know, what's going on with Russia and what kind of impact that 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 unrest is going to have. Also, what might be going on with uh, Taiwan and China. Either one of you gentlemen want to touch on that? 
Well, the uh, the Russian situation is uh, complex to say the least. From an agricultural standpoint, I think the real question is where where do the grains go out of that southern tier? Uh, how do you export, you know, uh, to feed grains and wheat out of the Black Sea anymore? And what kind of disruptions there's going to be? Also, we've seen um, problems in transshipments through some of those ports. Um, and that has really stacked up some products, especially poultry. Um, so I can't predict, you know, what Russia is going to do there, but it's certainly backing up the already overloaded um, uh, value chain of products moving both in and out from an agricultural standpoint. Um, I'm concerned uh, about Russia and, and energy. You know, I think that what yeah. we've seen with natural well, gas in, in Europe this yeah. year, uh, which is in, in large part, and part of it certainly is, is European energy policy, but a large part of it is, is, uh, is Russia and supply of natural gas to Europe. And that has cascading effects that are touching many industries. Yep. Russia supplies a third of Europe's natural gas. Oh. And they are having hyperinflation in their energy sector right now. Mm -hmm. If there's ever a time for Putin to make his move, it's to do it at a time when Europe just simply can't afford to oppose him. Now, the Ukraine is the number four corn exporter in the world now. And they're also the number four wheat exporter in the world. I don't know what happens. I... I think if if he's ever going to make his move, this is a prime time to do it, especially before summer, when they are when Europe is dependent on his natural gas. I think uh, I think there's some real risk there. Yeah, he has to move before spring, just because of some of the transportation logistics they would mm -hmm. um, they would face. But you know, the question is still why? Why would he want to do this and face the economic? And social consequences of this. And I think it would be a significant fall in demand, not only in that part of the world, but, um, you know, Western Europe as well. I think if he can do it without a massive war, which it may be a, it may be a soft war, the Eastern third of the Ukraine is somewhat pro-Russian anyway. It would be a great coup for him if he could go in somewhat unopposed by Europe and by the U.S. It would be a huge Russian victory. Well, there would still be sanctions imposed. And yeah. according to the Wall Street Journal, the, the positive feelings towards Russia have fallen significantly in the Ukraine. Hmm. Um, so I think he may be overplaying his hand here. Um, hmm. You know, it's, yes, we could go into another Cold War, but the economic consequences could be significant um, uh, for both sides. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's going to be a cyber war if, if that happens. The other footnote I think about any time with Russia or the Ukraine, we got to remember, we're dealing with <laughs> nuclear powers here, mm -hmm. which has always mm -hmm. unsettling. Yeah. Well, that's a really good point. Remember, the Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons. In turn, the U.S. and Russia and Europe 
agreed that they would maintain their current borders. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a North Korea, let's say, who's watching this closely and you give up your nuclear weapons and you still get invaded by one of the major superpowers, what is that telling other countries? Mm -hmm. You know, don't don't give up your weapons. Don't give up your defensive uh, mechanisms here. So, um, but uh, I don't know. I think the U.S. is being severely challenged uh, because they're seen as uh, weaker and and maybe um, not focused on the rest of the world as much as they should be, such as Taiwan and North Korea, which is facing. Uh, you know, significant food shortages um, mm -hmm. and labor shortages. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's a very, very unsettling time for me to look at what's happening in the international foreign relations and military conflicts uh, around the world. And, you know, you, you know, you guys know I do a lot of work in Africa. We had more coups or... Um, individuals hanging on to power through illegal means in Africa than we've had in probably 15, 20 years. So as as our attention is elsewhere in the West, things are, I believe, getting a, uh, getting a lot worse. And I started off this conversation by saying, I'm Mr. Negative. I'm the old curmudgeon of the group here. So, um, Maybe I just need another beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, one thing's for sure, gents, is that uh, at least from 10, 15 years of experience playing about in commodities, um, increased geopolitical risk, there's only one thing that's going to do to prices. And we've yeah. already been talking earlier about commodities already significantly elevated, inflation higher. Um, if the situation does deteriorate, then I see that certainly having further risk on those uh, on those commodity prices. Mm -hmm. yeah. While we're on commodities, I have a question. Yeah, you know, we touched a little bit on um, on labor productivity. What do you see as uh, as trends on uh, agricultural commodity yields? You know, I think over time you've seen like uh, continued improvements, but I've read that there's concern that because of climate or because of other things, we might not see that trend continue. And, and so what do you see that bringing in the future? You know, I did a, a project years ago for a company to determine, can we feed 9 billion people by 2050? And we tried all these different scenarios. We froze the footprint. We actually reduced acreage. We said, can we do it? And it was pretty shocking. What we found out was absolutely, and we can do it easily. It's, it's really quite easy to do. And the, the pathway to feed 9 billion is to spread productivity throughout the third world. If we can spread the productivity we have to Brazil and India in dairy, you know, think about dairy, uh, we can we can bury the world in milk. Um, but productivity, you freeze productivity and we're in big trouble, big trouble. And so we don't have to keep improving productivity here as long as it can spread globally. But overall, productivity is really the only answer. Yeah, and there's still a lot of vital lands uh, around the world as well. But yeah. I agree. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, before I retire fully, you're going to see more of like 
CRISPR technology in livestock production, you know, um, and so in both China and the U.S., have now realized that the amount of money going into agricultural research and productivity research has fallen too low. So um, that's the one bright spot uh, I see uh, right now. I can't believe I said a bright spot. (laughs) (laughs) My reputation is... It's not second beer. The second beer is kicking in. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I'm only worried about barley productivity. (laughs) That helps. That's the inflation that hurts. And with that, I think we'll, uh, we'll get everybody another round and we'll call last call. Our last call question is brought to you tonight by Puricol. Look to Puricol Choline Chloride from Balchem to deliver the highest standards of quality, backed by the strictest process controls, for a level of purity, safety, and consistency you won't find anywhere else. And what I'd like for um, uh, all of you guys to do is, you know, think about those of us in, in production agriculture. What are one or two recommendations that you would have to help us manage the inflation and the supply chain issues that we're facing today. And we'll start with Fritz. Ooh, um, well, I think one the one major issue of productivity is just what I stated was the CRISPR or similar technologies that are going to be made available. Uh, across the board, uh, whether it's in animals or in plants. Um, The second is the fact that I think as prices go up and populations, especially in developing countries go up, you are going to see greater adoption of productivity and adoption of existing tools that they haven't utilized, such as GMO um, grains across the board. And um, so that's where I see productivity coming in or could come in relatively quickly with the automation still slow, especially in the West. Kyle, any thoughts? Uh, I, I agree with Richard on the on the inflation side and driving productivity. Um, you know, with uh, with those costs going up, you have to look at ways to offset it. And uh, you know, the the typical ways that people have been doing for decades and centuries is, uh, you know, do things faster, uh, do things using less energy, um, all, all the above. It's uh, but being able to do that much faster and uh, and adoption of technologies. And adoption of those opportunities. You know, most companies have continuous improvement groups in their organizations, um, and uh, they're even more important in today's world than, than what they've what they've been recently. On the supply chain issue side, uh, if I uh, if I remember how I talked to to my own team uh, at the start of this year, thinking just for 2022, is uh, hey, ex- expect 2022 to be another bumpy road. And, and a real challenging, uh, a real challenging year, and uh, you know our uh, our approach to this, and what we would encourage our customers to do, and our suppliers to do as well, 
we all want to win in this supply chain is plan ahead um, and uh, and very importantly communicate and connect across your supply chain internally with your customers and with your suppliers don't assume what you expect to happen mm-hmm. it's going to happen okay because it probably won't and uh, and be and be agile be agile and be very curious um, with uh, with all your partners in the supply chain to keep ahead of this really, really challenging environment. That's just going to help differentiate people who will get through this challenging period successfully against those who, who may not be able to do it quite as successfully. Communication is just going to be key. Thank you for that. Uh, John, what are your yeah, thoughts? If I, to, if I were to build on something that Kyle said, I'll, I'll go back to earlier in the hour. We talked a, a little bit about supply chain headwinds, and I think we all uh, agreed that demand is probably the, the one factor that is driving it that could change things uh, maybe more radically than than any of the other headwinds. And, um, and I think that it's really critical for people to pay attention to where that demand is coming from and to try to predict when, when it's changing and how it's changing. Um, and I, I also think that some of the other headwinds are going to impact that you know we are facing and continue to face uh really serious logistics challenges and i tend to think in a lot of cases depending on the industry it's driving maybe regionalism more than we've seen in in other areas and so uh, i i think pay attention to those factors pay attention to demand and pay attention to to where the demand is coming from that that will be probably the most helpful thing that uh, that somebody could do very insightful brett final words yeah, I agree with all of you. I think those are great comments. Um, the volatility is for real. And in agriculture, we always talk about markets are volatile and uncertain. I think we could say that every year. But where we are today is different. And it's different, one, because of China. It's different because of labor. It's different because of logistic issues. The uncertainty and volatility are much more real. And so for producers, I think uh, when, when times are volatile and uncertain, you have to pay more premiums. You have to buy more insurance, whether it's through futures positions. You just have to spend some money and say, look, I'm not going to try and hit a home run here. I'm going to try and survive this. And so I think you have to be quick to, to pay a little money here and there to try and protect yourself. I talked to a farmer the other day and I said, what are you, are you worried about fertilizer? for spring. And he said, I have all of my fertilizer bought for spring. And I said, that's incredible. And he said, when I bought it, I looked like a complete idiot because I was out there just paying these exorbitant prices. But he said, with the supply chain situation, you buy early, buy everything and pay what you got to pay. And I would suggest for farmers, especially because it's so, there's so much urgency in farming. Look at your farm and say, what's the one part or tool that could shut you down this summer? You know, I raise some alfalfa here in Idaho, and we use underground main lines to run sprinklers. I have been buying slip slip couplers to repair broken main lines. I've got about five of them in the shed because if my main line breaks this summer and the farm store doesn't have one, I can't irrigate hay. And in the middle of summer, I've got about three days and it's going to be done. And so I think for any farm, you have to take a hard look. I talked to a dairyman who had lost his computer switchboard went out on his milking operation. He said, it was two in the morning and I called every dairy within 300 miles that would answer their phone until I found one because you just can't get stuff. So you may have to spend some money and build some inventory of parts and things that you may not need, but boy, get out there and plan early. 
I think logistics are going to be a real risk. And so uncertainty and logistics would be the things I think you really manage around. All right. Thank you, Brett. And thank you, gentlemen, for sharing your insights and vision for the future. As we all know, the global economy and market conditions change so rapidly. But as we all work to supply food to an expanding population, we need to be able to manage this fluid environment. Also want to thank our loyal listeners for coming and spending another hour with us here again at the Real Science Exchange. We hope to see you next time here uh, where it's always happy hour and you're always among friends. We'd love to hear your comments or ideas for topics and guests. So please reach out via email to anh.marketing at balchem.com with any suggestions and we'll work hard to add them to the schedule. Don't forget to leave a five-star rating on your way out. You can request your Real Science Exchange t-shirt in just a few easy steps. Just like or subscribe to the Real Science Exchange and send us a screenshot along with your address and t-shirt size to anh.marketing at balchem.com. Balchem's Real Science Lecture Series of webinars continues with ruminant-focused topics on the first Tuesday of every month, monogastric-focused topics on the second Tuesday of each month, and quarterly topics for the companion animal segment. Visit balchem.com slash real science to see the latest schedule and to register for upcoming webinars. Mm-hmm.